This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 3-1 pitch, swing and a drive. Deep to right field, way up there, way out of here. Goodbye, baseball. Eight strikeouts for the King tonight and make it... 23 consecutive scoreless innings for Felix. Strike three called on the outside corner, and there it is. It's time for the Seattle Mariners baseball podcast. Kyle Seager, that just happened. Thank you very much. Now, here's your host, Gary Hill. Welcome back to the Seattle Mariners Baseball Podcast. Gary Hill back with you. Thanks for being here once again. Certainly appreciate it as we head into a big weekend. The Mariners taking on the Boston Red Sox for three. But first, we have a lot to get to in this one. Of course, the the game yesterday, the Mariners beat Tampa Bay in game three of the series. So we'll talk about that in a moment. Also, Chris Inet is going to be here. Great conversation coming up. Also, Dave Sims caught up with local product like Snell, where the Mariners went again yesterday. Will Laws is going to talk about some of the best draft picks in history, and the Mariners have a few on the list. So we have a ton to get to. And again, it's been a strange week. These have not been posted as consistently as they normally are in the mornings, but uh, we'll get back to normal next week. So I apologize for that, but things will get back to normal next week in terms of the posting time for these. It's been a crazy week in many ways. So... Here's what we're going to do first. The Mariners taking on Tampa Bay, looking to salvage the final game of the series. And you, you look at it, and you know the Mariners, you look at the last seven losses. The Mariners have lost those seven games by a total of ten runs. And in another close game in game three of the series against Tampa Bay, Dejo Lee, a big day. The 1-2 to Dejo Lee, swinging a shot up the middle into center field for a base hit. Goody Ronnie third. Heading home, he'll score. Up of the ball, Desmond Jennings, a throw to third. Cut off again by Beckham, the shortstop. Down to second goes Cruz on a two-out single by Dejo Lee to drive home Goody. And the Mariners have a one nothing lead here in the top of the first as Lee comes through in the clutch. The 2-2 pitch, Lee with a swing and a line drive. Down the right field line, a fair ball in toward the corner. O'Malley will score. Goody rounding third. He'll score. Stopping at third is Robbie Cano. Dejo Lee in at second base with a two-run double. And it comes with two outs and the Mariners head on. It's now the Mariners five and the Rays two. And Dejo Lee now has three RBIs this afternoon. He comes through in the clutch again. His first career double after swanning 10 home runs on the season. Pretty incredible. John Mayberry, by the way, the most home runs in a season without hitting a double. He had seven home runs in the early 70s in a season without a double. So that record goes by the wayside as Dejo Lee swats his first double in his Major League Baseball career. And he wasn't the only one that came up huge. How about Chris Iannetto? Three hits after catching 13 innings the night before. And the next pitch to Iannetto. Swung on a drill to the gap. Left center field. On the bounce. Up against the wall. Iannetto digging for second. 
Talk about have a day. Chris Iannetta, three for four hours after catching 13 innings. What a day, what a day. And right now he sits second for innings caught in the American League behind Russell Martin and absolutely crushing left-handed pitching. He is on a hot streak in general, but left-handed pitching in particular, he is absolutely hammered. It's going to be interesting to see if he's in the lineup for game one against Rowanis Elias of the Red Sox. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So big nights from Lee, big night from Ionetta, and also the bullpen coming through. First it was Diaz, and then C-Shack. He's getting right-hander, delivers. Fastball swung on and missed, struck him out. Blew him away with 98 miles an hour. Edwin Diaz, couple of K's here in the seventh. Three-two pitch. Here she comes, and it's strike three called, and the ball game is over. Steve Ciszek strikes out Tim Beckham. What a struggle this afternoon, but the Mariners hang on and win it. A final score of six to four over the Rays, and the Mariners snap that four-game losing streak. They come away with win number thirty-five on the year. C-Shack with save number 15. So the M's take game three of the series, looking to get a roll going, but it won't be easy taking on the Boston Red Sox over the weekend. The top scoring team in baseball, they have absolutely mashed the baseball this season. The numbers are just incredible. Mariners facing an old friend in game one of the series. Uranus Elias will get the ball for the Red Sox. Sashi Wakuma has really pitched well. We'll pitch for the Mariners in game one of the series. Game two, Wade Miley will take the ball. Game three, it's going to be Taiwan Walker against David Price, so that should be a very good matchup in game three. Then the road trip continues with Detroit next week. So Mariners looking for a big weekend against the Red Sox. Right now, we're going to hand things over to Shannon Dreyer. Speaking of Chris Iannetta, and here's the conversation with the Mariners catcher. You know, it feels good. You definitely feel good at the play when you're getting hits, when you're getting on base, and you're contributing, and that's what you want to do. Um, felt good pretty much the majority of the year, aside from like a couple of days here and there, which is typical. Even when I wasn't getting hits, I felt good. I think we talked about that a bunch. It just wasn't getting any results, you know, so just thankful that that turned a little bit for now and enjoying it. What do you look for when you're not getting the hits to know that you're on the right track or you're doing the right thing? Yeah, just make sure it starts with starts with the mental approach and make sure you're not really getting on yourself. I usually get on myself really, really bad, so I got to kind of give myself a pass and focus more on the process and then make sure my cage work is good, make sure I'm getting the results in the cage that I want, that my, my mechanics are sound, I'm hitting the ball squarely in, in the cage, and then taking that out on the field and doing the same thing during PP. If I'm doing those two things, and the next logical step is going to start spilling over into the game. It never happens fast enough when you're not getting results, but, you know, eventually. Well, Skipper said, he pointed out in spring training, you're a guy that will get on yourself. Have you been able to do that a little bit less this year, or has that kind of been a constant for you? It's just who I am. You know, I don't like to... I don't like to not contribute. You know, it's not about necessarily doing well. It's about contributing and winning. And when I don't when I don't do that, I don't feel like I'm truly a part of the team. You know, if I'm not if I'm not adding to what the guys are doing, I feel like I'm a detriment. So I'd never want to feel like that. Even though in baseball you're always going to be on that side of the coin at some point during the year, it's just just the way it goes. Um, you never like it. I never enjoy it. So I just want to continually help contribute on the offensive side. How do you juggle that? Because a lot of guys who catch will say, well, at least I know I'm contributing with that and you want both how do you manage both sides of your game that's a lot yeah for me catching is just a given this is what i do i know how to do it i know i do it well i know i'm going to continue to do it it's not something i have to really have to try to do um you know hitting's more of the challenge it's something that 
it comes and goes. It's it's a constant work in process. You're battling how you feel mentally and physically all the time. So, you know, when it's good, you, you enjoy it, and you try to stretch it as long as you can. Where did your approach come from? When did you kind of turn into the Chris Iannetta that we see at the plate right now? Um, I realized very early on that I can't get myself out and let the pitcher get me out. I won't be here for very long, so I try to eliminate getting myself out, and that's the best thing I can do is not chase. And I found out I'm a better hitter when I'm in advantage counts, when I'm in counts where I'm 2-0, 2-1, 3-0, as opposed to 0-2, 1-2, and stuff like that. So I try not to chase. I try I try to get in those those counts, and, and that's really the focus. How much are you thinking when you get to the plate about those numbers, about those counts, and what you have to do in those situations? Um, you, definitely, you don't really think about it. You know, I don't. It's something that I don't think about doing. It just kind of, you know, what happens. So the biggest thing is look for the ball over the middle of the plate and try not to chase. You know, if I do that, I know that I'll, I'll be okay. What's something that Edgar's given you? Um, really, just the mental approach. You know how to how to think through. Um, you know the bad times. How to think through the the mechanical changes, or if you make something, or and just what to really focus on, just how to focus on the process as opposed to the result. What's different about his process? Um, everyone talks about the same thing, but he really puts a strong emphasis on, you know, the work that you do and really focusing on that and not being caught up in the result of it. You know, was I mechanically sound? Yes. Did I feel good? Am I doing the right thing? Yes. Was I making solid contact? And yes. And whatever happens after that, it's out of your control. You can barrel a ball up and hit it the hardest ball you've ever hit in your life and it could be right at right at a fielder so you know just really just focusing on that process you handle pitchers it would seem that their game is so much more controllable um yeah i mean it's it's funny um they're in control of it you know i'm just back there suggesting i'm just trying to put them in the right spots and ultimately it's still up to them you know if they they want to throw a pitch they can shake me off anytime they want. I'm just back there suggesting. Um, if I really feel strongly about something, I'll put it down twice. I'll go out and talk to them. You see me do that a couple times and just say, this is what I'm thinking. What are you feeling? And even if I say, like, hey, look, this is the right pitch right now, if they feel like they can't execute it, then we, won't, we go with what they can execute. Because 19 out of, 19 out of 20 times, is not, I mean, 99 of 100 times, you can say that many, that high. It's never the pitch. It's always the location. I mean, you can throw any pitch in any count, in any situation if you locate it. You know, slider down and away at the knees is a tough pitch to hit. A fastball down and away at the knees is a tough pitch to hit. A fastball up and in, whatever it may be, depending on that hitter. It's very difficult to hit that if it's executed, you know, no matter how good you are. Um, so it's not necessarily people say oh, that's the wrong pitch in this situation. It's never really the wrong pitch. It's just the wrong it's the wrong location. How different is it with the information you have now as opposed to when you first started out and, and knowing where those spots are? How much more success can you have? Yeah, it's a little bit more fine-tuned. When I started getting into the league, it was you had a broad approach. It was kind of the strike zone was broken into nine boxes and had those hot coal zones, and you can kind of really – you get an idea of what the hitter was. Now it's like you got this like heat map, color coded, infrared zones of like where they make solid contact, where they don't, on what pitches, on what times of the day. It's, there's a lot of information that you get that you get uh, can get really bogged down into. But the the trick is is to see what which pieces of this make me good. Like what can I use to tailor a game plan? You know, if there's a hundred things out there, I only use three of them and say this is what I need to know to get a good idea of what this hitter is, what he does, what he's trying to do, and how we attack him. And those three things I just I go with. I don't need the other stuff. I don't need, you know, that might be for someone else. That those are part of their selection. That makes gives them a picture of what's going on. But for me, I just 
you know, I just look at a few certain things and go from there. What's a pitching conversation kind of along those lines in preparation like between a James Paxton and, say, a Hasashi Iwakuma? They're both extremely prepared. I know after James's first start, he probably watched four and a half days of video nonstop and was so prepared for his next start. You know, he had he had a ton of notes and knew exactly what he wanted to do. Iwakuma's the same way, night in, night out. He, his preparation, the way he reads hitters and swings is just is perfect. You know, we're, we're always on the same page and what we see and what we read. And, um, you know, he's extremely prepared. Lastly, we're heading into Boston in a couple of days. You're from New England. Were, were you a Boston fan? Do you, What's it like for you to go back to that part of the country? It's nice because it's home. You know, it's where I live. Uh, I live outside, probably about 45 minutes outside the city. Um, so it's, it's fun to be back in the Northeast. It's fun to be home. Um, I grew up a Red Sox fan. You know, once you once you get into professional sports, the, the being a fan kind of fades away. You know, you don't necessarily become – you're not really a fan of that anymore. You know, you're in it. You know what it's like. You're – you kind of see the, the workings behind the curtain and, you know, you, you become uh, just kind of engrossed in what you're doing day in and day out and what your team's doing. So you kind of focus on that. Um, but like I said, it's nice to be home. Who was your favorite player when you were Man. a fan? Yeah. Well, when I was a fan, it was Griffey. You know, I, I loved watching him. It was tough to watch him on the West Coast. I'd wake up and check out Sports Center at 6.30 in the morning when I woke up to go to school. So I'd see what he was doing and see what it was. I loved the way he played. I loved, loved the swing. You know, and the whole persona was pretty pretty special. Dave Sims caught up with Blake Snell, who pitched against the Mariners yesterday, local product, and grew up idolizing the Seattle Mariners. It's more so, like, my family's, like, pumped about it. My dad's like, you're facing the Mariners, like, this is big. But my friends are the ones more, like, more blowing it up, more crazy about it. Like, dude, you're facing the hometown team. Like, they're all conflicted. Who do we root for now? <laughs> And they're like, they all keep saying, we want you to do really well, but we're going to go with the Mariners winning. I'm like, come on, you can't give me one game. And they're all saying it could hurt us in the stretch, so we don't know. But You got some pressure on you, my man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, tell me this. So growing up, who are your guys? Who, who did you watch? Who, who were the guys you focused on growing up as a, as a Mariner fan? Yeah, growing up, um, it's weird because I watched, I went through it early 2000s or early 2000s late, like 1999, 1998 is when I really started focusing. So I saw Griffey, A-Rod, Cora, Sagi, some good players, and uh, was really lucky enough to watch them. That's kind of how I learned. Mm -hmm. I never thought I was going to be a pitcher growing up. I just always watched. What position did you play? So I played outfield, and I was a pitcher, but I was always a way better pitcher. My dad just broke it to me later. (laughs) But, um, yeah, but watching them was I was just in awe, especially Griffey running in the outfield. Hey, the best. Yeah, by far the best. Hall of Famer for sure. He should have got 100%. Well, we're in total agreement on that. Yeah. We've been beefing about that all along. Hey, last question. Um, what's the thing? Give me a couple things that that your, your, your trademarks that got you to this level. Um, I would say what really got me to this level was my confidence in myself. I always felt like I was honest to where I could really allow myself mm-hmm. to become that much better. But also just the pure kid inside of me. I really do love playing baseball. It's something that I enjoy doing every day. I love waking up. I love knowing I'm playing baseball. So We've talked so much about the draft uh, 
such a big week for the organization for Major League Baseball in general. And this is a fun conversation with Will Laws, who put together a ranking of the best draft picks of all time. It's certainly a conversation that could spark debate, but not a big surprise that there's a couple of Mariners that made the list. Well, this is going to be a fun conversation. We have talked about the draft uh, for the last few days here on the air, on the podcast, everywhere else. It's a huge time of year for organizations. And this is going to be a look back and a fun look back as we visit with Will Laws from PointAfter.com, who wrote a pretty fun piece, Ranking the Best Draft Picks of All Time. Draft, of course, goes back to 1965. So this encompasses a ton of drafts. This is not an easy task to do. Will, thanks for being here. We really appreciate it. This should be fun. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me on, Gary. The, the first thing that strikes me, and before we talk about how you went about it, is when, when I look at the list, I think how different Major League Baseball history would be if just a couple of things were different. For example, Ken Griffey Jr., who we'll talk about, you know, if the Mariners drafted Mike Harkey instead of Ken Griffey Jr., the Pirates picked second that year. What if they drafted Griffey? Barry Bonds, Griffey in the same outfield. In that same draft, there's a span of like six picks where four catchers were taken. Craig Biggio was one of them for the Astros. But what if the Tigers had pitched, uh, taken Biggio in that spot? It's just amazing to look at how the history unfolded and how different history could be looking at your list. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, baseball, the MLB draft compared to, say, the NBA and NFL draft is full of so much more unknowns. You get, mm-hmm. I feel like you get so many, many more busts at the number one overall pick compared to, say, the NBA draft, which usually has a clear-cut superstar at the top, and there's just so many more unknowns uh, in baseball. And that's the other thing about your list that jumps out. I mean, it's not full of guys who are taking a first overall. There, there are no guarantees in the Major League draft. Of course, Ken Griffey Jr. becomes the first Hall of Famer pick number one overall, but your list just points out there's just no guarantees up and down. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's three really, if you're looking at overall performance throughout their career, there's three guys who really stick out, and that's Ken Griffey Jr., Chipper Jones, and A-Rod. And the Mariners picked two of those three guys. And after that, there's a really a huge drop-off. So how did you go about putting this list together? So I wanted to go ahead and measure which draft picks uh, provided the most value for the teams who originally drafted them. Because if you are just going over their entire careers, A-Rod is pretty clearly the biggest force taken number one. But I want to do something a little different and see, you know, which draft picks actually provide the most value for their original teams, which ones stuck it out. And, uh, you know, which teams managed to extract the most, uh, most value and most success from there the one time that they get the shot at that number one pick. So how did you go about so, it? How did you measure it? So I measured it by wins above replacement, uh, which is a pretty common saber metric, uh, which takes into account a player's offensive and defensive contributions to his team and basically measures how much better he is than a shall we say, quadruple-A player, a person who's just good enough for the major league but is very average. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny, and we're going to talk about, you mentioned two names already. I don't think it'll be surprised to Mariner fans that Ken Griffey Jr. and Alex Rodriguez are on the list, but it may surprise Mariner fans that there are actually three Mariners on the list. Mike Moore, former Mariner, comes in at number 21. I think that would surprise some Mariner fans. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, that really, again, goes to show that there's really no sure thing because Mike Moore probably wouldn't be considered a great number one pick, but compared, he's definitely above average for a number one pick when it comes down to it. Uh, there's so many uh, there's so many other busts that happen at number one. At least Mike Moore gave the Mariners some good years. He really did, and uh, a lot of ways he was overshadowed by Mark Langston in his run during that time, but Mike Moore was pretty solid in that stretch. So let's jump to the top three. Two Mariners, as you All mentioned, right. the top three. But let's start with number three. Who's number three on your list? Right. Well, actually, it's funny. A-Rod drops to number four when you just consider what he did for the Mariners mm. in terms of wins above replacement because – even though Alex Rodriguez is one of the best players of all time, he was only in Seattle for, I believe, five full seasons, and he didn't win any of his MVPs in Seattle. He won all three of his MVPs after he left to go to Texas and New York. Um, so A-Rod actually falls number four in terms of strictly wins above replacement, and the guy who replaces him at number three is Joe Maurer, who honestly has probably become a bit – underrated as far as his entire career goes. I mean, as you know, in the late 2000s, he was winning batting titles, leading the Twins to the playoffs regularly. He won the MVP in 2009. Uh, so he's done a lot for the Twins. He has accumulated more than 10 wins above replacement compared to what A-Rod did for the Mariners. No, you're right. And you look at what he's done for the Twins. I mean, he's climbing in, in just about every offensive category with names like Killebrew and Puckett. I mean, some big names with the Minnesota Twins. You're right. He's had a nice career for Minnesota. How about number three, then? Uh, uh, after number three, how about number two? Yeah, number two, I mean, this was the toughest selection of the article, obviously. Chipper and King Griffey Jr. are right there, one and two. But I ended up giving the number one slot to Chipper and number two to King Griffey just because, you know, going back to value provided to the original team, Ken Griffey was great in Seattle for more than a decade, but Chipper was in Atlanta for two decades, 19 years. And he, you know, won a World Series title there. He provided a few more wins above replacement. Uh, and, you know, that it's really about longevity. If we'd been doing this on career averages, I mean, Ken Griffey, I mean, he slugged 40 home runs uh, <laughs> six times. He had a 300 batting average for you guys, I believe it was seven times, you know, won that MVP in 97. Uh, both he and Chipper won one MVP. Uh, so they're really even, but I think the slight nod to Chipper uh, by the smallest of margins. It's such a, an interesting way to look at it, especially these days, you know, with free agency. You just don't see guys stick around with one team for that long. And you look at Chipper Jones' career, it's pretty amazing how it unfolded with the Braves. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, his rookie season in 1995, uh, he, had, he was originally called up in 93, but then uh, he tore his ACL, I believe it was, in 94. So that entire season was wiped out. So his rookie season in 95 uh, was that one year Atlanta won the title. Out of all those years, they won the division title. That was the one year they won the World Series in his rookie season. So it really was like the perfect beginning to his career. He was a top 20 MVP finish during his rookie year. And, you know, over his 19 years in Atlanta, the Braves won three pennants won those 11 consecutive division titles from 95 to 2005. And, you know, Jones won the 99 MVP, the 2008 batting title when he was in his late 30s. He still finished really strong. There was, in every season of his career, he was, uh, he gathered at least two wins above replacement, which is basically the cutoff for an above average contributor. So he was always, you know, the epitome of a solid 
player for Atlanta at the very least when he was there and really the epitome of a number one pick as a homegrown guy who just stayed there for his entire career. When you were putting this list together, were there any 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 surprises for you when you when you put it together and looked at the list when you were all done? Yeah, certainly. I mean, for me, Daryl Strawberry, who crept in there at number five, was a bit surprising to me. I, You know, Daryl Strawberry, all respect to him, but as far as a top five number one pick of all time, he just wasn't a guy who stuck out to me there. But he was great for the Mets during the 80s. They won the World Series title in 86 with him. He was great for a few more years after that uh, before moving on and uh, kind of deteriorating through the 90s. But as far as wins above replacement for his draft team, he was in the top five. And even just in general, if you look at his entire career, he's right on the border there with uh, Adrian Gonzalez, actually. Uh, Adrian Gonzalez is right there at number five and number six with Strawberry. Uh, but, yeah, I was pretty surprised that uh, Daryl Strawberry, considering you know, the latter half of his career was just ruined by injuries and drugs and all these other things, but he still comes in as a top five number one pick. Boy, it's amazing. I mean, he's uh, the kind of guy you say, what if, what could have been? Yeah. Anything else that jumped yeah, I mean, out? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, people, people were comparing Daryl Strawberry. I, remember I was looking at some old news articles when I was doing research for this, and people were comparing him to uh, Ted Williams when he was coming up because he was huge. He was 6'6". He had a great swing. He was just perfect mechanics, great stroke, but he just, you know, had some off-field issues and injuries that just caught up to him. Anything else jumped out while you were putting the list together? Well, yeah, David Price uh, has a good chance to be a top five at the by the end of his career. He's uh, obviously not with the Rays anymore, but just as far as throughout his entire career, he has a chance to break into the top five and overtake Strawberry at some point. And Bryce Harper is already halfway to Daryl Strawberry's wins above replacement total. He's already halfway there. So <laughs> it seems like a pretty sure thing that he will at least break into the top five and Honestly, I mean, obviously, Bryce Harper is a supreme talent, one of, if not the best player, one of the top two or three best players in the majors right now. So he is obviously the premier candidate to possibly break into that upper tier with Chipper and King Griffey and A-Rod. Yeah, it seems we're at a, a prime time for the for the draft in terms of the top tier. Because you look at, you just mentioned a couple of them, Harper and yeah, I think about Trout and Kershaw and McCutcheon. I mean, there's a whole list of guys. We don't know how their careers are going to end up, but this list in five to seven to ten years could look very different towards the top. Yeah, absolutely. And you have, I mean, Justin Upton has slowed down a bit, but he's kind of on the outskirts there as mm -hmm. well. You have Steven Strasburg, who really this year is, I feel like, his breakout year into the upper echelon of the starters in the majors because he's always been pretty good but hasn't quite lived up to that pedigree, all that hype he came in with as a number one pick. But this year he's finally looking like a potential all-star game uh, starter if he wasn't in the same league as Clayton Kershaw. Uh, but, yeah, <laughs> there, we, there's so much young talent in the game today, and it's going to be really uh, great to see how they develop over the next 10 years or so. Well, tell us more about the website we can go to as uh, to check this article out. You guys have a ton of good stuff up there, so tell us a little more. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, yeah, so I work for uh, Graphic is the name of our larger startup, and uh, pointafter.com is our sports domain. And we just have millions of data points and statistics across all the major sports, and we use that to create these interactive data visualizations like graphs and charts 
that we use in both our own articles on our site, pornafter.com, and also provide to our wide network of partners, which includes NBA.com, NCAA.com, Sports Illustrated, Yahoo Sports, where I wrote this piece we're talking about today. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's really our thing. We like to get down into the data of sports here and really draw insights from that, which is, uh, you know, why for this article I looked at wins above replacement uh, as the main metric for, uh, you know, the best draft picks. Well, Will, thanks for the time. This was a fun conversation. Yeah, and I encourage people to check out the site. There's a lot of good stuff on there. I'm sure we'll talk again soon, and I appreciate the time. <laughs> Absolutely, and hey, good luck to the Mariners for help for getting some more first-round picks to pan out. You know, Taiwan Walker, there's still hope yet. <laughs> no doubt about that. Thanks a lot, Will. Appreciate it. The 0-2 pitch swung on to the looper into shallow center field. This one is going to drop in. A base hit for each row, and there it is. Career base hit. Number 2,500 for Ichiro in career game number 1,817. They're going to take that ball out of the ball game. Congratulations, Ichiro Suzuki, the fourth fastest to 2,500 career base hits behind Al Simmons, Ty Cobb, George Sisler, all those guys in the Hall of Fame. So congratulations to Ichiro. There it is, career base hit number 2,000. 500. Way to go, each year. See you later! Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.